Church family, we have the joy of gathering back around God's Word once again, and so I want to encourage you to take your copy of the Scriptures and join me once again in the book of Acts. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in Acts chapter 19. We're going to cover the rest of the chapter, so beginning in verse 21 and going all the way through verse 41, in a message entitled, Riot in Ephesus. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about a revival in Ephesus, and this week we're going to talk about a riot that breaks out as a result of the revival in Ephesus. And so, as we begin to walk through this passage of Scripture, I want you to keep in mind what's going on in the book of Acts up until this point, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is spreading and transforming lives, that it began in Jerusalem, it extended to Judea and then Samaria, and now it's beginning to touch the uttermost parts of the earth. That was what Jesus had given to his disciples, the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, and that's exactly what we have seen happen here in the book of Acts. And so I want to read for us the text, and then we'll walk back through it together. This is what Luke records, beginning in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. 
But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes, that we would be able to see, that you would open our ears, that we would be able to hear, and that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would be ready to respond to your word and to your spirit. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. As we dive back into the story, seeing Paul's time spent in Ephesus, what we're going to see in the text this morning is that Paul is about to experience on the back end of an incredible revival in the city of Ephesus, a dangerous riot. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write down this truth. It's going to frame our time together both in the text and then as we talk about application later on in the message as well. So here's the main idea. Gospel transformation often leads to gospel opposition. Gospel transformation often leads to gospel opposition. Here's what I mean by that, so that you, as we walk through the text, will kind of keep this in the back of your mind, that when people's lives are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, when uh, sin is confessed, when they are seeking to live holy lives, and it impacts a community in such a way that people transform the way that they live within this community through the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, it shakes things up not only just in a cultural level, but also Satan loves to do everything he can to attack and to oppose that incredible work of God. And so that's what we're going to see happening in Ephesus in the text, is that we are on the heels of an incredible revival. Don't lose sight of the fact that what we've seen already in Acts chapter 19 is that the gospel of Jesus Christ had been preached in Ephesus and in the region of Asia, so that every single person, the text says, has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that it has prevailed in the city, meaning that it had swept in to control, that there were so many new believers whose lives had been transformed that it affected the very fabric of the culture in the city of Ephesus. So let's look, beginning in the first verse here that we're going to cover, verse 21, and let's see what's going on It says that Paul is getting ready. He resolved in his spirit to head through Macedonia to eventually go to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem, which was where he started, to go to Rome. Rome would have been the furthest part west that Paul would have gone to. And so he has preached the gospel in Jerusalem and then moving up into Asia, that region where the city of Ephesus is. And then he's looking to head even further west to the city of Rome to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's where Paul is getting ready to go, but he spends a little bit more time in Ephesus, and that's when the riot breaks out. So I want you to notice beginning in verse 22, it says about that time there was arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is uh, Christianity. That is often the way that it was referred to in the first century. And so there's a disturbance that occurs as a result of Christianity flourishing in Ephesus. Notice what's going on here. 
says a man named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. Now, let's pause there for just a second so you can get caught up in what's going on in the city of Ephesus at this point. We've said previously that they were pagan people, that they were often worshiping false gods, but one of the gods that they were worshiping, in fact, was this god called Artemis. And this was the god of fertility. And in fact, in Ephesus was a great temple that was built to this god. And in the ancient world, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In fact, the city of Ephesus was a major important port city for a long time, but about 200 years or so prior to this time in history, the ports had kind of dried up. In fact, silt had come in and it was no longer possible for ships to port there, and so they would go to another city. So Ephesus was no longer this major city of trade, but it had kind of set its mark in the Roman world as a city of worship. And the major god that was being worshipped was the god Artemis. And there was an amazing temple that was built there. And in fact, that was where great wealth in the city came from, was tourism coming in and supporting the economy there and also supporting those who were making images of the god Artemis. So that's who Demetrius is, who we're about to encounter here, this silversmith who was making silver shrines of Artemis. It said that it brought no little business to the craftsmen, meaning this was their primary means of gaining wealth or providing for themselves. And it says that he gathered all of the other artisans together who were making images of the god Artemis, and he said to them, here's the problem. The problem is Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to write down this first truth that we see in the text, that gospel transformation led people to abandon idol worship. That's what Demetrius is saying here. He's getting these guys together who are gaining their income from making carved images or images made of precious metals of the god Artemis. And he says, listen, this guy named Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people's lives are being transformed to the point that they are abandoning worshiping the god Artemis. And guys, I don't know if you know this or not, but that's affecting our bottom line. We've got to do something about this. We have got to take care of this problem. That leads us to the second truth. Abandonment of idol worship led to a drop in business for the idol makers. That's Demetrius and his crew that he's gathering together here. And they look and realize that, listen, we're not going to be able to continue to sustain if people's lives are transformed by the gospel to the point that they are worshiping the one true God and not the God Artemis. And so he's looking and saying, we've got to do something about this. Well, what do we do about this? Well, let's start a riot. You see, what he knew is that in the city of Ephesus, that those who had not trusted Jesus as their Savior still worshiped the god Artemis. And he says here, let's make this case that if we don't do something, this cash crop of being able to make idols and this tourism of people coming into our city to visit this great temple that's made to Artemis and to worship Artemis, if we are not going to do something about it, we're going to lose all of this influence and all of this wealth and all of these tourists coming in to the city. So let's stir up the people. Let's get them riled up 
that the god Artemis is about to be overthrown by Jesus, and let's stir the people up. And that's exactly what they do. In fact, the third truth we see is that idol makers stirred up the people who rioted. Many of them didn't even know why they were rioting, but they all gathered together into the theater. It was a great Colosseum-like place where some 20,000 people could gather. And so they packed the place out and they began to cry out, great is Artemis, God of the Ephesians. And as a result of that, the guy named Alexander stands up who's a Jew and he basically tries to distance himself from Paul, but they won't even let him speak. And it finally comes down to the point that the town clerk who was put in charge of the city of Ephesus to try to keep order, he comes in and he says, listen, we are very much in danger. He says, all of you know that Artemis is the great God who we worship in Ephesus. Don't worry about this guy named Paul. Don't worry about the gospel that's being preached here or his companions who are with him. I say, if there's a a real issue, it needs to be dealt with in the courts. But if we continue rioting, word is going to get back to Rome and they're going to come in and they are going to take over. You know, it's interesting that in the text, one of the things that I find so fascinating is that the gospel of Jesus Christ so transformed the people's lives in Ephesus that the very fabric of their culture was ripped away that the very fabric of who they were, the very fabric of what brought income into their city was in an instant because of the gospel of Jesus Christ transforming hearts and lives. It was radically altered in the city of Ephesus. Isn't it amazing? As we've walked through the book of Acts, we've seen the gospel of Jesus Christ continue to transform lives. And we said last week, as we saw it happening, that great revival in Ephesus, and I ask you to join me in that prayer, that that we would see something like that in our city, something like what's going on in the city of Ephesus. No, I don't want to see riots, but gosh, I would love to see the gospel of Jesus Christ prevailing in such a way in our community that it rips the very fabric of what's going on in our community away that it replaces it with the greatness and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Let's take a few moments to continue to worship together, and then we're going to walk back through the text and think about opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we respond to that? How do we deal with that? What happens if we experience that? And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Let's worship together. So let's walk back through the text of this morning and think through some points of application as we seek to apply what's going on in Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41 into our own lives. As we take that main idea that gospel transformation often leads to gospel opposition, how do we respond when that actually happens in our lives or in the life of our community or in the life of North River Church? How do we respond when lives are being transformed and yet there seems to be opposition to that transformation? You know, as we think about that, I want you to notice first that we should expect opposition. We should expect opposition. Listen, if we are faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to stand on God's word, to urge people to trust Jesus as their Savior, if we are faithful to do that, both individually and as a church family, 
we should very much expect opposition. And primarily that opposition is from the evil one, from Satan himself. Just think about that for a minute, that Satan's desire is, the scripture says, to steal and kill and to destroy. That even though he is a defeated foe, even though Jesus Christ is the reigning king, even though his life and death and resurrection are sure and guaranteed that in the end we will rule with him for all eternity, Satan has still been allowed to do everything he can to thwart and to stop the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so think about this. If we are faithful to be a part of God's mission of making disciples, of sharing the gospel, of living faithful lives in obedience to the Lord, of making an impact as a church community here in this community, we should expect opposition. It should not surprise us that we would be in the crosshairs of Satan who is seeking to steal and kill and to destroy, to discourage us, to dissuade us, to cause us to not do what God has called us to do. So as we think about that, how do we expect? How do we prepare for that? How do we know that when opposition comes, we're ready for that. You know, I think it's interesting that as we look through some of Paul's letters, we come across Ephesians, and we are reminded in Ephesians chapter 6 how interesting that it's in light of this type of encounter that he experienced in Ephesus, but where we encounter Paul encouraging the believers to put on the full armor of God. Armor is meant to protect Armor is placed on someone who is expecting to experience some type of opposition. And so for us as believers, for us as a church family, we should expect opposition and therefore we should prepare ourselves for that opposition. For the onslaught of the enemy against us, seeking to do everything he can to keep us from fulfilling the mission that God has called us to fulfill. And as we expect that opposition, we cling wholeheartedly to the promise that Jesus Christ made that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We should expect opposition, but listen, we should claim the reality that Jesus' church will prevail. It will be built up. It will grow. It will prevail even in the midst of of opposition. I want you to think about it as well. We ought to celebrate opposition. Now you think about that and it's like, why would we celebrate when bad things happen? And I want us to flip that on its head. I want us to recognize that when opposition comes, it means that God is doing something. When opposition comes into our lives as believers, when we are seeking to fulfill the mission of God, or when opposition comes against North River Church as a community of faith because we're seeking to fulfill the mission that God has called us to fulfill, it means that we're actually doing something. It means that we're actually accomplishing the mission that God has called us to accomplish. And so instead of wringing our hands and complaining about the opposition that we experience, we should celebrate that. I mean, in our minds, we ought to think we must be doing something right. You know, it's been interesting over the last number of months, and as we've kind of walked through just some difficult seasons as a church family, as, as we look back to some of the issues we had as we were walking through the building process with, with the county, as, 
you know, we walked through this COVID-19 season over the last number of months. And then recently, as we were notified, we couldn't begin meeting in the school anymore. You know, those are all things that that oppose what we've been trying to do as a faith family in this community, as we've been trying to fulfill what God has called us to fulfill. And, you know, for me, there's been times when I've been incredibly discouraged with that. There's been times when I've thought, gosh, really, is that another thing? I mean, one more thing that we have to walk through, one more thing that we have to endure, one more piece of opposition coming up against us. And and yet, here's the truth. That must mean that God is at work at North River Church. That must mean, if we're experiencing this opposition, it must mean that God is doing something in this body of believers, in this community, that God desires to do even more. And I think in this time, there would be nothing that Satan would love more than to discourage us and to cause us to wring our hands in fear, to be frustrated, to be discouraged, and to really just want to give up in this time. But I want to encourage you, church family, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate that evidently we have a target on our back. Let's celebrate that Satan's doing everything he can to thwart what God's doing at North River Church. Let's celebrate that Jesus has promised to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We may be experiencing some opposition and we may experience opposition in the future, but let's celebrate that because we know that God is at work in this church family. And then think about that in your own lives. When you personally experience opposition, as you're seeking to live out your faith in this community, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, as you experience opposition as a result of that, celebrate the fact that God is at work in your life to the point that Satan is taking notice and trying to do something to discourage you from doing what God has called you to do. So instead of being discouraged with opposition, church family, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate as a church. Let's celebrate individually, knowing that God is at work in incredible and powerful ways. And then I want us to think thirdly about enduring opposition. So expecting opposition, preparing ourselves for that, celebrating it when it happens, knowing that God is at work, but then enduring it. Not becoming so overwhelmed or so discouraged that we just walk away from doing what God has called us to do but that we are willing in that season when we're experiencing opposition personally or when we may be experiencing opposition as a church family to make the determination that I know that it's going to come. I know opposition's coming my way. I am going to celebrate that. And then I am going to plant my feet firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to endure the storms of opposition that may come knowing that I'm not enduring this alone, that I am enduring this with Jesus Christ at my side, with his Holy Spirit indwelling me, knowing that the mission that I'm a part of is a mission that ultimately will succeed. And so for us, I've thought about this a lot over the last couple of weeks. When we were notified, we couldn't meet any longer in the school. And I thought about, man, six weeks of not being able to meet together after enjoying that season when we were able to meet together. But you know, I look at that and I think, we can endure that. We can walk through that. 
We can walk through that with the privilege of being able to gather digitally and worship together as a faith family and gather with other believers and watch the service and encourage one another. And here's the thing. We can walk through this because we know that this is the path God's called us to walk. We can endure this season because we know that on the other side of this season, God is going to work in a powerful way. And so I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you that as you as an individual believer live out the mission that God has called you to fulfill of making disciples, and as we as a church family do everything that God has called us to do to serve this community, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in this community, as the opposition comes, and it will come, we should expect it. We should celebrate it. And then we should endure it, knowing that on the other side, what God is going to do is far beyond anything that we could ask or imagine. I want you to pray with me. And then we'll close out our service singing once again. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the great reminder that when we are doing what you've called us to do, that Satan is doing everything he can to discourage, to dissuade, to steal and kill and destroy in our lives and in the life of North River Church. God, help us expect that opposition. We saw that Your church experienced that in Ephesus, and yet they were prepared for it. They walked through it. They celebrated through it, and they endured through it. And God, you did incredible, miraculous, amazing things as the gospel continued to transform that city. God, would you do that in our city? Would you allow your work at North River Church and through other faithful gospel preaching and teaching churches in this community and other believers and the believers at our church family, would you work through us in such a powerful way that it catches Satan's attention, that he looks and sees something's happening here, and then as he attacks, that we'd be ready, that we would endure, that we would celebrate that you have counted us worthy to work through us in a powerful way. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You sing with us as we close out this time together.